Good morning. It is um, a delight to be back with you today as we begin this time together. Let me first say thank you. Thank you for your prayers this past year. I learned experientially that the prayers of the righteous do indeed availeth much, and I am profoundly grateful for your kindnesses, your concern, and your prayers. We are looking at resurrection appearances of Jesus. Of all the conversion stories in the Bible, none is more significant or dramatic than the conversion of a man known as Saul of Tarsus, raised a devout Jew, trained as a Pharisee at the feet of Gamaliel, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Saul became a violent opponent of the early Christian church. He hated this new sect, and he hated the followers of Jesus Christ with such a passion that he did his best to extinguish the light of the gospel as if it were some sort of new virus. Then one day, his life was permanently transformed. So lamentable was his reputation that upon hearing of the conversion, almost no one believed that the change was real. But word quickly spread that this vicious opponent of the Christian faith had now come to faith in Christ. And over time, the genuineness of Saul's faith would be proven. His conversion was so profound that there are three separate accounts of it in the New Testament. I would argue, though, that the seeds of Saul's conversion were sown sometime before his actual conversion. In Acts 5, the apostles of our Lord had been arrested And as the Jewish ruling council met, Paul's tutor in the faith, the great Gamaliel himself, said, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might be even found opposing God. So they took his advice. Ironic, though, isn't it, that one did not take his advice, his student, Saul, did not heed his teacher's words. Two chapters later, in Acts chapter 7, he watched and consented to the stoning of Stephen's death. So this is the matter before us today, Saul's conversion and what it might mean for us. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. May we humble ourselves before it that we might hear and learn of your Christ. May we receive the gift of your spirit to open our hearts and minds to what you would say. And may he form within us the very likeness of Christ. It's through him we pray. Amen. So we began in Acts chapter 9, but Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, As he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone round him. A good study Bible will tell you that Damascus is roughly 140 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem, an oasis on the border of the Arabian Desert a six-day journey on foot, and Saul, we read, was going there to arrest some Jews who had professed their belief in a strange new teaching that was spreading like wildfire through the synagogues. This teaching claimed that Judaism's long-awaited Messiah 
had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Saul saw this teaching about Jesus as an existential threat. The followers of this new teaching were teaching in the synagogues that the Jewish Messiah was someone that had been crucified. They were teaching that the law, God's covenant with Israel, had been fulfilled and a new covenant had been introduced. They were teaching that the resurrection of the dead and the inbreaking of the future age had begun in and through the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul, knowing that this teaching was false, understood that it needed to be aggressively opposed and put down. But here's what I find so incredible about Jesus. While breathing threats, Jesus met him. So extraordinary. So attractive. Saul is a picture of a person going in exactly the wrong direction. Tom Wright in his book, The Way of the Lord, highlights this vividly. He said, Saul is on a journey away from the temple. He's going away from Jerusalem, away from Judea. He's going to Damascus, the land of Israel's ancient and current enemies. In Saul's day, if you wanted to meet with God, you would head toward Jerusalem, toward the temple. This is where you met to meet with God. But physically and metaphorically, Saul is going in exactly the wrong direction. And again, the beautiful thing about Jesus is he met Saul. And so he meets us when we are on the wrong road. When we are headed in the opposite direction, he meets us. And some of you know this. You have been on the wrong road. Maybe not persecuting Christ, but on the wrong road nonetheless. Maybe you've run away from your marriage, or you've run away from the church. You've run away from what you have known to be true and right, and yet, even there, the risen Lord has met you. And so here's Saul, on a mission to obliterate this emerging Jewish heresy, heading to Damascus thinking he knew what was right, what was morally right, what was theologically right, confident that he understood the ways and means of God's work in this world, and he, the Pharisee of Pharisees, was completely wrong, on the wrong road for the wrong reasons, completely misunderstanding the plan of God. And yet there Jesus meets him. Maybe some of you are on the wrong road this morning, going in the wrong direction. Your body may be here, but your heart and your mind are far from here. Maybe you have a desire for a relationship to evolve into a marriage. You pray, and for unknown reasons, you remain single. But there in the midst of your sadness, your disappointment, Jesus can find you. Because it's so often in the broken places and pieces of our lives where we find the Lord. I can recount for you story after story over these 30 years of ordained ministry. People telling me that the best thing that ever happened to them was the unexpected pregnancy or the financial setback. Psalmist writes, where shall I go from your presence? Where shall I flee? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, right? If I am living in hell, you are there. If I fly away to the other side of the sea, you are there. If you are running from Christ, angry with Christ, ambivalent toward Christ, guess who might meet you head on on your own Damascus road? 
In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, we're told that Paul saw a blinding light from heaven around him. In verse 5, and again in verse 17, and still again in verse 27, we read that the bright light was none other than Jesus. Paul speaks again of this blinding light many chapters later in Acts 26. Why? Why the continued mention of this fiercely blinding light? Well, here's what I think happened. Saul looked up into the sky and saw this fiercely blinding bright light, and what he saw was the light of the glory of Jesus. By the glory of Jesus, the Bible speaks about the beauty of Jesus, his attractiveness, his excellency, his extraordinary worth, his loveliness. And what Paul saw was Jesus as the most wonderful, most beautiful, most attractive, magnificent, compelling being in the entire universe. The scripture writers constantly refer to the experience of seeing and being undone by the beauty and glory of God. It's this vision of Jesus so captivating, so attractive that lit Paul's heart on fire. We get a glimpse on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see it again in the Apostle John's poetic opening to his gospel. We see it yet again to this same John in Revelation, seeing the risen Christ and falling at his feet as though a dead man. We see it here in Peter when he speaks about being an eyewitness to the majesty of Jesus Christ. Having seen the glory of Christ, they could never forget The same Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Right, so here's what happens when someone is saved. Just as scales fell from Paul's eyes, so God takes away our blindness. He lifts the veil so we can see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Do you recognize Jesus as beautiful? Is he glorious? Is he attractive? Is he lovely to your heart? Or does there remain a veil over the face of Christ? Is he just a name? What Paul saw in his Damascus Road encounter was the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What changed Paul, what made Paul so passionate was his encounter with the glory of the risen Christ. I think all of us are made with a longing for beauty, a yearning for glory, something compelling, something wondrous, something that captivates our hearts. And I think we have this longing for something or someone who is absolutely captivating. But the scriptures teach us that we exchange the glory of God for lesser things, for people, for passions, for trivial pursuits. And what we end up doing according to the scripture is that we shudder our hearts so that we are blind to the bright shining Son of God. We shudder our hearts and we try to create our own light by lighting our own candles to someone or something else and we miss the shining glory of Jesus. Because while it is the enemy who blinds the eyes of unbelieving, we are also complicit in our own blindness. And I'll make this as practical as I can. Every day, you and I are presented with choices, dozens of choices, perhaps very hard choices, regarding what we are going to let our minds and hearts dwell upon. And as a matter of habit, you may find yourself regularly dwelling on the faults of your spouse, or what he or she is doing or not doing. 
And what a friend has failed to do. You dwell on the faults of your child or a coworker or your boss. You dwell on the faults or failings of your own church. But you can choose instead to turn your attention to Jesus. To look upon the beauty of him now. For there is grace today to open the shutters of your heart to the Son of God. To dwell upon him, to think upon him, to worship him. Alternatively, you can spend your time dwelling on your victimization, recounting again and again how you were hurt, how you spend all your time thinking about the betrayal, how you were spoken ill of or slandered. Or you can focus and turn your mind to Christ. You can spend your time dreaming about a nicer house, of more money, a better job. You can focus your heart alternatively on Christ you can be eaten alive by anxious thoughts about all the what ifs of life the uncertainty that COVID has evoked you can be eaten up with disordered passion or you can find peace for your restless heart by turning your heart toward Christ as many times as necessary A work of the Spirit of God is to refocus our heart upon Christ, and I will be as honest with you as I possibly can. This has been the greatest blessing of this past year for me, to refocus myself on Jesus. Last year at this time, having just been released from the hospital, I found myself in the most pain that I'd ever experienced, pain that would lead me back into the hospital a few weeks later. My internal pain management sounded something like this. I would breathe in, and I would say, Abba. I would exhale, and I would say, Father. I'd breathe in and say, Jesus. I would exhale and say, I love you. I would inhale and say, Holy Spirit. I would exhale and say, come. That was almost a pleading Over and over, every day it seemed, all day, for weeks on end. And he met me. Not in the blinding light, but just as personally, God met me. And as much as I wanted to be freed from the pain, and thank God, for the most part, I have been, I learned to want the Lord's presence more. In the ICU, in those 20 days of isolation, I found the Spirit to be my companion. When my hands were too weak to open a Bible, the Spirit recalled to me verses that I had tucked away over many years. And he was my confidant, my counselor, my teacher, my friend, my healer, my comforter. And there in a bed, I learned again to delight in the beauty of Christ. And I have learned in this past year, in the paraphrased words of Charles Spurgeon, to kiss the wave of COVID that has dashed me upon the rock of ages. And I don't want that to sound too spiritual because to be very honest, I had no choice. For whatever reason, I was given over to COVID. Despite the prayers, I was not delivered in the moment. And if you've been sick, if you've been very sick, and in the hospital, you know that the nights are most difficult. Those long, lonely hours of the night when the second hand seems to move as slowly as the hour hand. 
When you're left alone to your thoughts and your fears rise and wash over you and your adversary returns at the opportune moment whispering dark thoughts? From my first days of faith, Paul has been someone with whom I've read and learned of with great eagerness. What carried him through the shipwrecks and the imprisonments and the beatings, the sleepless nights, the hunger, the cold, the abandonment? Well, here's what I think carried him. I think what carried Paul through those difficulties was someone he met and something he learned on that Damascus road. I believe he saw the glory of Christ. And in that blinding light, I think he saw the loveliness of Christ. And Jesus became for him more precious than silver and more costly than gold and more beautiful than diamonds and nothing he desired any longer compared to what he had found in Christ. You know, I have spoken personally about Jesus to more non-Christians in this past year than I have in a very long time, much to my shame. It has been a long time since I have felt this evangelistic zeal to speak to Christ, about Christ. Why the change? I think most simply, I have seen again the beauty of the one who saved me. And while I would have always said he had my heart, I say today, he now has my heart. And I can't help but talk about him. And you know what I've discovered? I've missed that. And I've been surprised at the wide open doors the Lord gives me to walk through. One of the people attending me post-discharge was complaining one day about a rainy day. And I said to her, I love rainy days. Why? She asked. I said, rainy days remind me of one of my favorite Bible verses. Oh yeah, what's that? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And she rolled it over. She said it out loud two or three times. And she said, I think I like that. What does it mean? I said, I'm sure you will like it. It means that God pours out his grace upon all people. The ones we think deserving and the ones who are truly undeserving. That God shows no partiality or favoritism, but grace is given to all. If you ask, and if you're attentive, the Lord will open more doors for you to speak about the beauty of Christ than you can ever imagine. You know, Paul's heart was filled with passion. At first, a disordered passion, a hatred, in fact, until he met the risen Lord. And still filled with passion, but now a transformed passion, he turned city after city upside down with the proclamation that this Jesus is Lord. And I wonder what you are passionate about. I wonder what fills your mind. I wonder what you have set your heart upon. I wonder if you feel far from Christ in this COVID year. It doesn't mean he's far from you. What do you dwell upon? What is the focus of your life? There's an old truism, cliche, that says we become what we worship. We become what we dwell upon, what we behold, what we focus upon. Has the name of your political party been on your lips? this past year more than the name of your Savior.
That's a problem. What's the desire of your heart? What dreams fill you with ambition, a desire for Christ, the dream of his kingdom? My paternal grandparents lived in the Missouri Ozarks way, way, way back in the holler. My grandfather was born in 1900. My grandmother, 1907, neither graduated from high school. But they knew Jesus. They loved Jesus. They lived Jesus. I don't ever remember either one of them sitting me down to actively evangelize me. But I remember my grandfather's Bible next to his chair, his hand upon it sometimes, head back, mouth open, sound asleep, little trickle of tobacco running down his chin. I remember the refrain of one of my grandmother's, if not favorite hymns, one she sang often. I remember the two of them often singing hymns, sometimes together, sometimes just humming along, one in one room while the other in the kitchen singing. I still hear my grandmother's voice, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, Paul had a dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and maybe you have too. Or maybe retrospectively, you like me can simply say, Jesus has met me on almost every road of my life. And I'd be willing to bet that if you looked, if you paid attention, you too might be surprised to see him standing in the road of your life today, calling you, patiently waiting for you to try everything, to look everywhere before your heart settles on him. Friends, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.